Now, I didn't know that piano piece was coming, but lucky for you guys, that peace, peaceful, melodical song kind of put us in a, a state of kind of serenity. Because I'm here today to approach a less serene book, and it's the book of Judges in the Scripture. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Nathan. I'm our operations manager here at the church, and so I do everything from bookkeeping to budgets to email communications, and occasionally I'm given the opportunity to preach. And so I have our pastoral staff to thank for picking judges of all weeks for me to preach on. In fact, I was talking to my dad this week, and he's been a pastor for 30 years, and so he asked me, oh, great, Nathan, what are you preaching on this week? And I said, judges. He's, oh, I don't remember the last time I I spoke from judges. So here we go. We're going to give it a whirl anyhow. And as you know, we are working through the Bible, so we have to hit the things that are uncomfortable. And so we're working through a series we've called From Garden to City. Um, Or in the words of Tim Mackey from the Bible Project, how the whole of Scripture is a unified story that leads to Jesus. So in week one was the fall, and we explored the Garden of Eden, God's creation account, uh, and it identified his original intent. God intended for you and I, for humanity, to live in a harmonious relationship with him. But in that process, in giving us the freedom to choose for ourselves, to love him or to not, we decided to make ourselves the God of our own lives. And this sin... This sin separates us, and Adam and Eve were removed from the garden. From there, we looked at Abraham, Joseph, and Moses, and have learned how God, in spite of the sin, in spite of us choosing for ourselves what is right and wrong, hasn't abandoned us, but he has all along made a plan to restore our relationship to him. Then last week, Pastor Carolyn spoke on the laws given to God, and specifically the tabernacle laws, and the way in which God, uh, the holy God we have, has allowed us to dwell in the same space as him. Through animal sacrifices and rituals, Israel was able to share space with God, and once again, be brought back into that original state, the original intent that God has always created for us. And now woven throughout this whole story so far is this underlying idea that Israel is going to get somewhere. They're going to get to the promised land. See, Moses, they were in Egypt, and he brought them out of Egypt, and God said, you know what, I'm going to give you this place It's the land flowing with milk and honey. This is the promised land you'll get to. But thus far, they're not actually there yet. And so in a matter of two minutes or less, we're going to just skip through five chapters of the Bible. Is that all right? So we're at the book of Exodus, um, and we touched on a little bit of the other books, but we also have the book of Exodus Then we have Leviticus, which is the Levitical laws given to the Levite priests. We have the book of Numbers, which is basically the 40 years of the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. 
Then we have the book of Deuteronomy, which is another law, book of laws that, you know what, it actually means Deuteronomy's second law. So Moses is just reiterating what he's already spoken to them. And then Moses dies and they're still not in the promised land. And then God raises up another leader called Joshua. And under Joshua, finally, Israel has made it. And you might be thinking to yourself, perfect. We're at the good part of the story now. Like, we finally accomplished what God has intended to do this whole time. But judging by the book of Judges and the title itself, you've probably guessed that it's not a happy-go-lucky book. In fact, uh, this book is quite a hard read if we take time to read through it all. It has gruesome murders, sexual exploits, and total moral anarchy. And so, with this in mind, in light of the darkness and the tragedy of Judges, any illustration I provide you this morning is going to fall short. And so I'm going to try to provide an analogy anyhow, because I think it will help conceptualize it. And so, the book of Judges is a little bit like my relationship with cereal. That's right, breakfast cereal. See, I'm not much of a diet guy myself. Uh, never been one for, you know, counting calories, watching what I eat. But if I'm ever feeling the urge to get healthy, the first thing I do, or the first thing my wife tells me to do, is to cut the cereal out of my diet. I have about two or three bowls a day. And we're talking about the Lucky Charms, the Reese Puffs, the Cinnamon Toast Crunch. And she's, she's pointing at it. They're not little bowls. They're, they're big bowls of cereal. And so, Margaret, if you flip it on the screen, I go through a bit of a cycle here. And so we have healthy Nathan. I kick cereal out of my diet. But then a few days, few weeks pass. I forget to think about it. And then all of a sudden, in the third period of a Leafs game, I find myself on the couch with a bowl of cereal half done, and I say, what the heck just happened? How did I get here? We're on this whole health kick. The problem is, and if we keep going through these little slides here, Margaret, is I become complacent, and then I become, one more slide, full of lucky charms, and then the sugar gut comes. That's right, Margie, you could leave that up. And I realize why I started this process to begin with, it's to eliminate the sugar gut. But the problem in this whole cycle that I put myself through is that if I really wanted to kick this bad habit, this cycle that keeps happening, what I really need to do is ditch the cereal from the pantry. Because all of a sudden, two weeks in, and the cereal's still there, and that's when I find myself with a bowl of Lucky Charms. Now see, under Joshua, the Israelites, having entered the Promised Land, were given really clear instructions. We read this in Joshua 23, verse 12. And this is at the end of Joshua's life. And he's telling the Israelites, okay, I'm leaving you, but remember, remember what I've taught you. And he says this, 
But Israel, if you turn away and ally yourselves with the survivors of these nations that remain among you, and if you intermarry them and associate with them, then you may be sure that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you. Instead, they will become snares and traps to you, whips for your back and thorns in your, and thorns in your eyes, until you perish from this good land which the Lord your God has given you. And so God's commands are clear. Drive out the nations around you. Do away with the idols. And from 21st century eyes, we read this and think, oh, that seems quite harsh, God. Why, why should we do that? Like, can't we just kind of coexist? But if we situate ourselves in the ancient Near East, we can understand the way in which Canaanite culture and Israel under God, they couldn't coexist. Take, for instance, the Canaanite religion. They worshipped the god Moloch. And this was a god that demanded child sacrifice of his people. Incompatible. It doesn't fit. And so God's instructions are quite clear. He says, drive out the nations. You can't inhabit the same space. But thinking back to my serial analogy, you've probably thought to yourself, okay, I know the problem. They didn't actually do away with these nations. And you're right, we read this at the very beginning, right after Joshua dies, the next generation, we read this in Judges chapter 1, verse 27. But Manasseh, which was a tribe of Israel, a sub-tribe, did not drive out the people of Bethshan, or Tanakh, or Dor, or Iblim, or Megiddo, and their surrounding settlements. For the Canaanites were determined to live in their land. When Israel became strong, they pressed the, uh, the Canaanites into forced labor, but did not drive them out completely. Nor did Ephraim drive out the Canaanites living in Gezer, but the Canaanites continued to live there among them. Israel didn't empty the cupboard. They hadn't obeyed God's commands. And the result we have is the book of Judges. And as I said, this, uh, the analogy is not going to be nearly as good because the cycle we see across 21 chapters, seven times in the book of Judges, is the cycle here. God blesses Israel. They become spiritually complacent. They suffer at the hands of their enemies. They finally cry out to God for help, and he raises a judge. And they're blessed again. And seven times the cycle keeps happening, each time worse than the last. And so, from 3,000 feet, a surface overview of the book of Judges, the message is really quite clear. And it's this, idols and the worship of other gods is incompatible. It cannot and will not fit with the worship of Yahweh. God is holy, and therefore the unholy cannot share space with God. And this is kind of what we've been seeing kind of reiterated time and time again over the last six weeks, isn't it? From the garden, we're kicked from the garden because the holy and the unholy, they cannot share space. 
But over these past six weeks, we've also learned of an eternal hope. Despite our broken and sinful condition, we've been offered a grace-filled God who through Jesus Christ forgives us of our sins and we are brought back into right relationship with God. And just as Christ meets us, Christ meets the Israelites in the book of Judges. His grace overwhelms the circumstances. But like the Israelites, we're still commanded the same thing today. We're called to eliminate the idols in our lives. But I want to highlight this this process of identifying the idols that we have and removing them is not a practice that earns us salvation. If we do it, it doesn't get us any closer to God. It doesn't make us good enough for heaven. Our salvation, our sin, our separation has already been fully accomplished on the cross. Sanctification, however, is the practical and lived-out experience of being transformed more and more into Christ's likeness. And it's the slow work of the Spirit transforming our hearts to be less of the world and more of God. And part of this process of sanctification is the work of stripping away the idols in our lives and setting ourselves completely and wholly apart for God and God alone. And while in theory this practice, this, this idea, this concept is quite simple, I think we all can understand the idea of idols Uh, Brian and Glenda last year did a whole series on it. We know this idea that God is supposed to be first in our lives. Um, It's a little harder in practice. Uh, And that's because I think idols are sometimes hard for us to identify. Take, for instance, the idol worship of uh, marriage or of a family or of a relationship. These objectively good things can become idols in our lives. And these idols are no better or no worse than the Baal statues and the Asherah poles we read in Judges. For instance, there's this permeating idea in the Christian community that if you have the right romantic relationship that sets you up with the perfect marriage with two kids, a dog, and a white picket fence, you're finally blessed. But if we really read the scriptures, we realize that this idea is contested by Jesus Christ himself. The idyllic human figure was never married, was a celibate man his entire life, as was the Apostle Paul and many of the disciples of Jesus throughout history. Another less obvious idol that we can find ourselves in our life is the idea that family comes first. Family comes first, everything else second. And it's really jolting then to hear the words of Jesus in Luke chapter 14, verse 26, where he says, where it says, One day, when large groups of people were walking along with him, Jesus turned and told them, Anyone who comes to me but refuses to let go of father mother, spouse, children, brothers, sisters, yes, even one's own self, 
can't be my disciple. Anyone who won't shoulder his own cross and follow behind me can't be my disciple. Now, what I'm not saying here is that any of these things in and of themselves is wrong. They are, in many instances, a gift from God. However, we need to rightly consider them in the order that they're due. First and foremost, everything falls under God's kingship in our lives. And so ultimately, the message found in the book of Judges is clear. We as Christ followers, as part of our sanctification process, are to do away with these idols, even the hard ones to see, in our lives. But in reality, the practice of doing this is much harder uh, in, in, in real life than it is in theory. Because the practice of eliminating idols is the process of relinquishing control. And we know since the garden, since the fall of humanity, that's the, that's the sin of our lives. It's taking control of our own lives, wanting ourselves to determine what is right and what is wrong. And so then in this desire for control, we create these idols in our lives to search for peace or contentment in the midst of this broken and crazy world around us with idols of money or of work, we think to ourselves, if I only have enough, or if I find the right job with a good work-life balance, then, and only then, I'll find the peace I'm looking for. Or we think, if I can just manufacture this perfect relationship, this perfect family, or if I find the perfect person, then I'll be truly satisfied. We look for peace and contentment in these various things. Or maybe you're like me, and it's less of grasping at things to find peace, but I erect idols in my life as distractions from the world around me. I think of my love of sports or social media, the news. Why do I have these idols? Why am I fixated on these things? It's because I want to be temporarily distracted from the craziness of the world around me. And they offer me this temporary peace, this contentment I'm looking for. But in each and every one of these things, whatever idol we erect in our lives, whatever thing that we think is going to fulfill us, it's going to make us the person, the peace-filled, content person we think we want to be, none of them are actually going to satisfy they're not going to give us the peace we're looking for. So again, we're left with the question, okay, we know we need to do it. It's quite difficult to both identify and relinquish control. So how? How do we, where do we go from here? We know from the Israelites that idols are not to be a part of a love of God. And so to close today, I'd like to briefly look at the story of Gideon, which is one of God's judges. So if you turn to me in your Bibles, we're going to open to Judges, chapter 6, where it's on the screen. If you have good eyes, you can probably read it. And it says this, The angel of the Lord came 
and sat down under the oak in Ophrah that belonged to Joash, the Abbey's right, I think I said that right, where his son Gideon was threshing wheat in a wine press. Now, you're not supposed to thresh wheat in a wine press. What we hear here is he's hiding. He's in a little hole in the ground because he's scared of the Midianites. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Gideon, he said, The Lord is with you, mighty warrior. And I got to love Gideon's response here because I definitely see myself in Gideon. He says, pardon me, God, but if God was with me, then why is all this happening? Where are all his wonders that our ancestors told us about? When he said, did not the Lord bring us up out of Egypt? But now the Lord has abandoned us and given us to the hand of Midian. But the Lord is patient in his response to Gideon. And he says this, Go in the strength you have and save Israel out of Midian's hands. Put another way, go, Gideon, rid yourselves of the Baal statues, the Asherah poles, and the idols that you and Israel are busy with. And again, Gideon responds, Okay, pardon me, Lord. But how can I save Israel? My clan is the weakest in Manasseh. I'm the least of my family. And I think we can see ourselves a little bit in Gideon here, because oftentimes when we're asked to relinquish control over the idols in our lives, we come up with excuses too. God, I I really don't have the energy or time right now. Probably should, but how about you and I circle back to this in a few weeks when I've sorted out my life, then we'll deal with the idols then. Or we think to ourselves, you know what, I've, I've kind of done this whole relationship thing a few times here. I think if you just give me a few more tries, I'm really going to figure it out. I'm really going to master it. So you just kind of leave it to me and, and we'll figure it out then. But the Lord is clear. And the Lord answers Gideon, he says, Gideon, I'll be with you. And you will strike down all the Midianites, leaving none alive. I will be with you. The Lord is with you. See, I acknowledge today and know from my own experience that the relinquishing of idols is not easy. It means relinquishing control over our lives. But in these moments of vulnerability in these anxious moments of letting go of what we think is control, we have a God who is not distant. He's not sitting back and seeing how well we do with the whole ditching the idols thing. No, he's a God that comes up alongside us and says he draws close to us in this difficult and precarious time. He comes alongside as a secure foundation to hold on to as we let go of these idols in our life. And so the words God spoke over Gideon are the same words he speaks over us today. I will be with you. And as we do, as we lean on the Lord, we're given a peace 
that no idol can provide. True peace, God's peace. So as we leave today, the invitation is very simple. The invitation is to ask the Lord, okay, God, I know according to the Israelites and the book of Judges and really all of Scripture that I can't have idols in my life. So God, reveal to me the idols in my life. Simple enough? And then step two, when he reveals them, and he's going to be faithful to reveal them, begin the slow and difficult work of letting go. But don't do that alone. Draw close to God in that difficult process. God has given us his word, the freedom to communicate with him anytime, any place, and the gift of the body of believers to journey this process with. Our God is a faithful God who meets us in our times of weakness, in these difficult moments, and his desire is to give us a peace that we could only wish, hope, or imagine. A peace that no idol can give us. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we give you thanks for your word and the reminders all throughout Scripture that you are a God who, despite our brokenness, Despite our desire to be God for ourselves, in your grace you meet us where we are. You forgive us of our sins and draw us close to you. So Father, today we pray that you'd reveal the idols that we have erected in our lives, those things we worship in the hope of giving us peace and contentment. And God, in doing so, we are assured that you will draw close to us. And so God, give us the strength to relinquish control and to latch on to your steady and steadfast presence in our lives. We give you thanks. Amen.